G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counselling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. I, I love the way you roll your R's. I know. I, <laughs> I'm glad you Ruffles. enjoy that. <laughs> Have ridges. Have ridges. Uh, <laughs> Do that for you, my friend. It's so good to be here with you. Little drum roll at the beginning of your name. We are continuing in our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking questions who composed the psalm, what is it about, uh, what happened in the life of the author at the time of the composition, how does it apply to us today, and you know, when applicable, what would Christianity, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm, and how does that deviate from the original intent? Don't know that there's much in this particular psalm in that regard. We're in Psalm chapter 17. I'm going to read it through. You ready? Okay. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give attention to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, uh, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, uh, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the path of the destroyer. Uphold my steps in your paths that my footsteps may not slip. I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand, O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. They have closed up their fat hearts. I'm going to come back to that. Uh, With their mouths, they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps. Uh, They have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life and from from the wicked with your sword. Verse 14, this is the second last verse. With your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life, and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasures, they are satisfied with children and leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness, Michael. Um, this psalm is interesting, uh, I, I think, because the uh, the coarse tuning, I mean, the, the big picture the general meaning is not that hard to discern, but the fine-tuning, the, the 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 actual parsing of the words and translating of the words is is very difficult here. And what's interesting, I was following along as you were reading mm. in uh, two other translations, and almost none of the words matched. And I, 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 I well, think, yeah, I know. Now, now I'm glad you said that because I I also did check with a couple of translations, and again, I did find uh, some great variations when it came to some specific verses. No doubt, we'll talk about that. Yeah, huge variations, mm. and I think that that not only serious variations, but 
I think that if you were to round up, um, you know, a dozen versions and even even two dozen versions, you'll find that almost, uh, you know, universal disagreement mm. in terms of how to. Now, again, the the bigger picture is is not going to change radically, um, but it, it, these are very very. You know, it's interesting that unlike uh, parts of the Pentateuch, uh, you know, the five books mm. of Moses, where there are, are narrative portions, which are very straightforward, Psalms is, is in a sense, poetry. It is poetry. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, both the language and the structure of the, um, of the phrases is much more complex. Parts of the Bible that are um, the narratives are very straightforward to translate, but here the translation is very, very imprecise uh, enterprise, and so that that's one thing I would point out. Now, one of the things that does not present itself plainly in this psalm, uh, and we've seen this in a few others, is that it, sometimes it is e- it's easy to identify what prompted the psalm to be written, what the context was, um, you know, who wrote it, why they wrote it. Here, it, it is identified as a prayer of David. And it's interesting that there's only five times in the book of Psalms where the particular psalm is referred to as a prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Philala David. So this is the first one that you have referred to specifically as a prayer. And the question is, you know, did anything in particular prompt this? And the, the text itself is not clear, although what does emerge from this, and, you know, we've seen this in so many of the chapters that we've already um, studied, is that clearly there is some kind of persecution going on, that David is uh, having difficulties with his enemies, with, with people that are, you know, making his life miserable. And so... Obviously, that's part of the background here. That 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 is what seems to have prompted this prayer. Um, but you don't really get more than that. Now, the the rabbinic commentaries suggest that the background here uh, has to do with not just him being under attack, but feeling very vulnerable because of his sin, and specifically the sin uh, that took place with Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the commentaries say specifically this psalm was written after he had had Yoav, uh, the general, send mm-hmm. Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, to the front lines to be killed. Mm. And apparently, you know, this was weighing on him, and there was a feeling of guilt and therefore vulnerability, meaning that not only was he under attack, but he felt that he was specifically vulnerable because of his sin. And now, so can I can I interrupt you there and just ask you about that because if if that is the case uh, we have uh, circumstances by which David very much did do the wrong thing so much so that uh, Natan comes to him and says you know uh, he, he tells he tells him the story the parable of the, of the man with the lamb and so on and so forth uh, at at the end of which David says, you know, this man shall not live, and Natan says, "Well, you are that man," and he goes, "Oh, I have sinned." You know, I've, now you know he he, he realizes and he owns um, uh, the the terrible sins that he has committed. Uh, Natan says, "You know, God says through Natan, you shall not die." 
uh, God has put away your sins. But but here in Psalm 17, and particularly in verse 3, uh, David says, you have tested my heart. I mean, here we have David protesting his innocence over something. It would appear you have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. That's curious, because if we are talking about the situation um, that that you're referring to, it's it's not that there is nothing there. I mean, would would this not suggest that David is in denial? Well, first of all, it's, it it seems obvious that that if this is the case, if this psalm is emerging out of that episode with uh, Bathsheba and her mm. husband, that this seems to be after uh, he has the encounter with Nathan mm-hmm. with the prophet Nathan. And he now is, you know, going through this part of his life where there's now the fallout from that episode. Right. Okay. And so, you know, it's interesting because even though he was told on the spot that you're forgiven, it's very clear that he is in the grips of guilt uh, afterwards, notwithstanding. Mm. And, you know, I think it's the kind of thing that, you know, works on people on many levels. That even though, let's say, on the simple legal level, legal legally, he was off the hook and God wasn't going to punish him, but he probably was still struggling with this, uh, maybe for for years, because he understood that, you know, it's one thing, you know, we speak about this when we talk about tshuva of repentance. Mm. It's one thing to overcome what you did, you know, like mm. I, I I won't do that anymore. I recognize that was a mistake. But the harder part is to really come to face and to come to grips with what got me there in the first place, right? There was some inner weakness that yeah. allowed, right? And and, and, and not the, just that, but also the consequences of those actions. Just because one might uh, be put in a right standing with God in repentance doesn't necessarily mean that the consequences of, of those actions are going to go away. They can be ongoing as well. And uh, David has to deal with that. Yeah, and it's interesting that you see a number of biblical characters that I, I think, when with David, it's it's more revealed because he writes so much. But um, you know, the way the commentaries look at someone like Aaron, um, very similarly, that you know he felt tremendous guilt and anxiety about having been at the center of the golden calf incident. And he never felt worthy. I mean, even though he, he, he retained his position of the high priest, there are many indications in the scripture, in the text, that he was reluctant and he didn't feel worthy and he felt, um, you know, still tremendous guilt over it. Mm. Um, and again, that, and that operates on many levels. It could be that, you know, that, that the guilt on an overt level he dealt with already because he knew that he... Um, he had repented, or he knew that he, you know, did what he had to do. But still, there there are fine tuning levels of things like guilt and remorse. And so, it, it, I think David is such a complicated character, such a, a complex figure that um, he's probably struggling with this kind of um, issue for a long time afterward. You know, how does he really? You know, become the kind of complete and whole person that is way past whatever mm. weaknesses got him into that terrible situation in the first place. Well, if so, we continue uh, interpreting the, the the prayer, this uh, psalm through that lens, 
Uh, can I ask your opinion in regards to verse uh, four, where it says, "I have kept away from the path of or the paths of the destroyer"? What's what's your thoughts there? <laughs> such a such a hard verse to translate. <laughs> um, I'll tell you the, the 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 translation that to me worked best and and read um, most smoothly in terms of understanding what's going on, is actually the, the rendering by uh, Samson of Full Hirsch. Mm-hmm. And so the way he, uh, and it, it's so fascinating, uh, it would be great if we could to put a diagram up showing side by side how every word here is translated in you know, two dozen uh, versions, how different they would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so he renders this verse as follows. In order to bring the deeds of men... To follow the word of your lips, I have observed the paths of the lawbreakers. So, you know, the last three words in Hebrew, shamarti archos paritz, that's pretty straightforward. I, I, I observed, I watched, I guarded the pathways of the rebel, of the lawbreaker, of, the, of what have you. The first, uh, first five words mm-hmm. in Hebrew, the first phrase, that's a little bit more obscure and and uh difficult to translate um so he has it um in order to bring the deeds of men to follow the word of your lips i have observed the paths of the lawbreakers and in his commentary he he explains the 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 meaning of what this just said you know like whenever we read a verse in the bible two important questions number one what does it say Mm. <laughs> what what does it say? Number two, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. So, right, you can figure out sometimes, and it's not always so easy as we see in this psalm. You can figure out what the words mean, right? That's going to come up with your translation. But then, what does that mean? What does it say? What does it mean? Um, I always give this example in, in the beginning of the book of Exodus. God says to Moses, "Bo el paro," right? Literally, um, come to Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Now. No one speaks like that. Everyone would say, go to Pharaoh. So the words are, come to Pharaoh, and you, you have to struggle and ask yourself, well, what, did that, what does that mean? Why is God speaking in such a weird way? So the way Rabbi Hirsch explains this verse is as follows. He says, I have observed how even the ways of the lawbreakers serve to bring the deeds of men under the sovereignty of your law. That's why David says that he has observed the paths of the lawbreakers. Because why is he? Why does he pay attention to the the behavior of the wicked people? Because they actually serve to bring the deeds of men, meaning other people. It helps bring other people right. under the sovereignty of your law. How he says those crimes which the wicked man commits against his neighbors become instruments of God. That somehow. The, the, the negative deeds, the, the crimes that are committed by the wicked, they have the ability, at least, to serve as An example of what not to do. That, and, and sometimes more than that. He says God employs them. You're right. That's on, on one level. You know, the Talmud says, who is the wise man? The one that can learn from everyone. Mm-hmm. Really? Even the wicked? Yes, you could learn what not to do. Mm. But Rabbi Hirsch says... Um, God employs them, God uses the wicked 
to make those who love his law and are capable of improvement and needful of discipline ever more perfect in their loyalty to the law and in their obedience to his will. Now, I think what that means is that there are people who want to be uh, faithful to God and to faithful to God's will and to live their lives in a consonance with the will of God. And yet, you know, if their life was easy and they were and everything was smooth sailing, so you know, there would be a certain amount of virtue in living your life uh, according to the will of God, mm-hmm. but it would be even more virtuous if you had to live that way in the face of opposition and persecution. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what he's saying here, is that God uses these wicked people who are going to make the life of the righteous people miserable. So he uses them to make those who love his law and are capable of improvement, but they need discipline because everybody needs discipline. Mm. Everyone needs to be – in the book of Isaiah – the prophet says that God purifies people through making them suffer at times, meaning that sometimes suffering is good for us, mm-hmm. meaning that we never, we never ask for it, but it can have the, the effect of purifying people in the sense that it, it has the ability to make us or get us to be less involved in physicality, mm-hmm. meaning that um, – you know, there are things, uh, for example, um, people go through an illness, and so they it very quickly pulls them out of a materialistic, physical kind of uh, involvement in life, and it gets them to focus on bigger issues, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on, on, on other people, on the quality of their lives. I mean, we often get very stuck in the mundane, physical, materialistic world that mm-hmm. we're in. And how do you get pulled out of that? And so one of the ways that we can become purified of that is through suffering. And so he says that God uses the wicked people as a way of inflicting discipline, so to speak, on people to become even more perfect, he says, in their loyalty to the law and in their obedience to his will. Thus, this is the ending of this, thus even, even evil serves the purposes of righteousness and the criminal unwittingly advances the cause of God's kingdom on earth. And so David says, this I have experienced in my own life. He's actually, he, he's seen, he's learned from experience that, you know, persecution, uh, you know, has this effect. It's able to do that to him. So he says he he watches these people. He he observes them because he sees that that. That, that the lawbreaker, the wicked, they look, look, they do what they're doing not for this reason. They have their own agenda. But, you know, God is able to use them uh, for other purposes as well. Now, I think there are many other ways of reading this verse. Um, I, I mean, I, I didn't look at hundreds of commentaries. I, well, but, it, it, uh, I will admit it did. It, it caught my attention, this particular verse. Uh, and the reason why it did, and I, I approached it with curiosity from a slightly different angle. Um, first of all, I noticed, and as I as I mentioned when I first uh, read um, verse 4, uh, the New King James from which I'm reading uh, includes the word destroyer. Most other verses, uh, most other translations 
would translate that as uh, instead of the paths of the destroyer, the ways or the paths of the violent. Um, violent is the word that is generally used. And so I found that curious. But going back um, uh, where it says concerning the works of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept away from the paths of the destroyer. I went to my, uh, my, my Jewish study Bible and it said, uh, as for man's dealings, in accordance with the command of your lips, and I thought, ah, that's very different. In accordance with the command of your lips, I have kept in view the fate of the lawless. And I thought to myself, well, where would that, where would that command be? And what is the purpose, if there is such a command in the Torah, uh, what is the purpose of such a command? And I, I went just on a very quick search, but it brought me to uh, two verses. One of them was Exodus chapter 23, verse 13. And here, the New King James does use a, a word that I think is, is valuable, and perhaps you could give me your opinion as to whether you think it's a fair translation. It says, in all that I have said to you, be circumspect. I love that word circumspect, and make no mention of the names of, of other gods, nor let it be heard on your mouth, so dealing with idolatry. But circumspect means to observe and, uh, and be cautious. Uh, observe that's, and that's Exodus 23? Verse 13. I'll take a look at that. Have a look at that. And uh, But no other translation that I could find used the word circumspect. It was like, you know, be careful or um, uh, be on guard, you know, pay strict attention to, uh, some other translations would say. Uh, but here, circumspect, and I think I think um, I, I found that interesting because it does carry the the idea of watchful cautiousness. And if David is uh, with that in mind, perhaps watching the conduct of the wicked and being mindful and reflective and cautious in that regard, perhaps that might be uh, the springboard from which he. Uh, jumps into this verse. The other, the other one that uh, came to mind was Deuteronomy chapter four, verse nine. It says, uh, "Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do, and, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your sons and grandsons." But really, uh, yeah, Exodus twenty three thirteen. I, I liked that word circumspect, and I wondered uh, if that um, reading it again from the Jewish Study Bible. Uh, as for a man's dealings in accordance with the command of your lips, I have kept in view the face of the lawlessness uh, of the lawless. Uh, he goes on to say, "My feet have held to your paths; my legs have not given way." So I've 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 watched, I've considered, and I've been careful not to uh, make their mistakes. Is that also a possibility? Yes, I mean I think that follows very very um, smoothly, meaning from verse four to five. That you know, he's saying because I have watched, and it's interesting because the the word in verse four is the the pathways, right? The the paths of the of of the lawbreaker or the, or the violent or whatever mm -hmm. you're going to call them, and it, it has the connotation of how they're walking, how they're going through life, and in verse five, he speaks about his walking, right? Um, you know, again, there's a million ways of translating verse five. I have in the Hirsch um, that that watching and, and observing the the wicked, he says that it kept my steps within your bounds, so that my feet did mm. not waver. Right. 
um, right? I was able to keep myself on the straight and narrow because, as you said before, I, I really learned what not to do. These people set an example for me in, mm. because I saw that their path, you know, it's very interesting that the, the very first of the Psalms speaks about, you know, the paths of the wicked and, uh, you know, and, and the righteous is contrasted to that. And part of the, I think, impact of that Psalm is not just there's A and there's B, there's the ri- ri- righteous and the wicked, but that the righteous, in a sense, understands, you know, what a path of self-destructiveness the wicked person is on. You know, that becomes very clear when you go through all these Psalms we've been reading. You know, the wicked people have a very bad track record. They're not they're not enjoying their lives. I mean, it, they might look like they're enjoying their lives, but there is misery here and certainly for eternity um they're not in a good place spiritually uh, and it it's you know it's something which the writer of psalms or any sensitive person spiritually uh you know is able to just watch what's going on i mean look we live in a world and it's this is not unusual i mean i think that's been the history of mankind we we've always lived in a world where we don't have to look too far to find models for this. I mean, you know, we, we see it in our own circles, our mm. own personal circles. And if you go past our own personal circles, you know, you watch what's going on outside in, in the big cruel world out there. There's, there's enough wickedness to go around. and uh, Plenty of examples, you know, yes. Yeah, and I think, that, I think that people who have their head on straight spiritually – you know, they may be far from perfect, but they, they, they realize, like, that's just not where I want to be. Hmm. Yeah. So, circumspect. I really like that word in, in that It is a great word. Yeah, it is a good word. So, let me jump ahead now. To, speaking of, you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> the downfall of the wicked, <laughs> I just want to jump to, to verse 10, unless you want to highlight anything in between, but I find it really curious. They have closed up their fat hearts. In fact, hearts is... In italics, it's not actually in the text. They have closed up their fat. <laughs> With their mouths, they speak proudly. Michael, what do, how, do, how do we understand this? That's, again, you know, there are so many verses in this psalm that can give you a headache um, <laughs> in terms of translating it. Now, I do have, I will okay. say, in my, in my other translation that I've got open here, my Jewish study Bible, their hearts are closed to pity, their mouth arrogance. Um, but... Uh, I, I, it, would it be fair to say that uh, uh, the use of uh, they have closed up their fat is a more um, literal translation? So again, the second phrase here, the, the you know the uh, part B of verse ten, is pretty straightforward. I mean, most of the translations will agree that it's it's saying that they speak arrogantly with their mouth or with their mouth they speak pridefully. That's pretty much mm-hmm. what you're going to get. That's, so first two words, chelbamo. Um, uh, well, the first three letters of chelbamo is chelev, which is fat. Mm-hmm. And sagaru it means to close. So those words we have. You know, we know what those two words are. Mm. The question is, how do you put them together to make any sense? Um, so here, I'll just share five translations I, I, I noted. One is they have enclosed themselves in their own fat, which means what? I mean, I think one of the <laughs> one of the <laughs> one of the uh, you know images in, in the Bible. I think it's in Deuteronomy, right? It says, 
Vayishman Yeshurun Vayivat, that Yeshurun grew fat and they kicked. Yes. Right? Yeshurun. And so in, in, in a lot of Jewish literature, this idea of growing fat talks about, you know, a person accumulating wealth and sort of, you know, living it up and, you know, and, and sort of wallowing in their riches and their materialism. And it, it leads to kicking, meaning uh, rebelling. So one image that comes here is they have enclosed themselves in their own fat, meaning that they've basically wrapped themselves up in uh, materialism and riches and wealth and physicality and corporeality. I mean, it it's just seems to be painting a picture of people who ha are closed off from the, the spiritual and they've wrapped themselves up in, you know, sort of, you know, over the top, basically, over the top materialism. Do you, do you know you what know, it like, reminds me of? And it's and it's only through the connection of words. It may not be related in uh, in the um, intention of the of the verse, but it takes me to Judges chapter three and the story of oh, Ehud. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what we have is the assassination of Eglon, and uh, and Ehud. And I'm going to read from verse um, <laughs> twenty one. <laughs> Oh, well, no, let's go back to 20. I mean, this is such a great story. So Ehud came to him. Uh, now he was sitting upstairs in the cool private chamber. Then Ehud said, I have, a, I have a message from God for you. So he arose from his seat. And then Ehud reached, this is Eglon arose from his seat. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his thigh, his right thigh, and thrush, thrust it into his belly. Now we understand uh, that Eglon was a, um, well, it says in verse 17, Eglon was a very fat man. Uh, so he thrust the dagger into his belly. Verse 22, even the hilt went back in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade. He did not draw uh, the dagger out of his belly <laughs> and his entrails came out. Oh, it's so graphic. <laughs> anyway, it reminds me of that. Yeah, I, I think that, that here in Psalms, I think that, it, it's not referring to someone's girth. No. <laughs> I think I think that it's 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 an image. It's it's figurative language. Um, although in in another translation, the, the way they render this phrase is, in their gross fat, they are shut. They're they're, they're shut up. Right now, I was going to. Is this like in in modern day English? Would we say you know? Would, could it possibly be David saying, "Close your fat, arrogant mouth." <laughs> oh, you know what? Is that possible? That's possible. This, but I think again, I think the first part of the verse is is describing why they speak arrogantly with their mouths. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they're they're just so, you know, they're so full of themselves. Right. They're so, you know, they they, you know, it's the kind of you can just see this person, like you know, every night gorging themselves and and. Mm -hmm. You know, and just sitting there and watching television and having 13 beers and 20. <laughs> and, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, and it doesn't have to be so low class. It could be someone who, you know, is, you know, fine dining every night and, you know, just just living a life that's over the top materialistic and self-absorbed. Um, a, a one good translation I found is their fat has enclosed them, meaning mm. that they're just caught up. In a, a life of riches and mm. uh, and self gratification, and luxury, yeah. luxury, and 
And um, it's interesting. One very obscure translation is they have well hidden that which they cherish the most, right? I mean, that chayla fat, and you know, we talk about the fat of the land, mm. the good parts of the mm. land. And so th- this is a very, I forget where I saw this translation, um, but, you know, th- that they've closed off their fat, meaning that that which they cherish the most, they have well hidden. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. Now, Hirsch um, translates this as, Oh yeah, that, that I'm sorry. That's exactly how Hirsch translates it. Okay. So let me let me share what he means. He says, um, "Nor can fear of counterattack by me be the cause of their continued hatred." So he, he says in his comments to verse ten that th- their continued hatred of me is not simply a fear that I'm going to strike back at them, for they have carefully locked up and hidden their fat, meaning their precious possessions. So they need fear no robbery, and so they are not af- and, and so they are not afraid. That is what they state so proudly with their lips, meaning that what they're proclaiming with their lips is that we're not afraid that anyone is going to come and, uh, and, and counterattack us. Why? Because they've taken all of these precious things of theirs, and they've carefully hidden them and locked them up, um, so they're not afraid of anyone coming to rob them. Now, that, mm-hmm. to me, that's a little bit of an obscure way of reading this passage. Um, I mean, I think that the simplest approach is that, you know, it's describing people who are all caught up in a, a life of luxury, and that's what leads them to speak arrogantly with their mouths. Hmm. I like um, I like shut your fat arrogant mouth. I like that. I'm gonna stick with that. So, <laughs> but I think that's what it says in, in the NLT, the New Living Translation, which is very really. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But that's their style, right? They're very uh, colloquial. Colloquial, and, uh, yeah, yeah. They're not they're not literal. So I think no. That, <laughs> uh, so it continues. Uh, just to to uh, follow on, uh, they have now surrounded us. In our steps, they have set their eyes crouching down to the earth as a lion is eager to tear his prey and like a lion, a young lion lurking in secret places. That's very reminiscent of chapter 22, which maybe in a couple of years we'll get to. Yeah, that's <laughs> another – we've had this before actually. I think back in Psalm 7. It was, yeah. There was, we had a spoiler, spoiler alert. Yep. Um, you actually have it back here in verse 9 where it speaks about um, – my deadly enemies encompass me. That's that's the second mm. part of verse nine, and to encompass hikifuni is the exact same word that's used in chapter twenty-two, um, where David speaks about his, his enemies surrounding him in the same way he speaks about it in verse nine, and in verse twelve. You're right. Um, you know he speaks here about the enemies being like a lion. Mm. Um, you know, and that's exactly what happens in chapter 22, that David's enemies are compared to a lion. And here he says that like a lion that looks to tear in pieces um, and like a young lion lurking to, in secret places. Um, so yeah, this is language. And again, I think it's important that when we go through the Psalms, we we bear in mind some of the imagery that comes up over and over again, because you see that David is consciously making use of it. So throughout the book of Psalms, um, you know, David uh, has as an image 
a way of, of allegorizing mm. or, or figure, figurative speaking about his enemies, you know, a, as being vicious, like 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 animals of prey that are just ready to tear their prey to pieces. Yeah. Um, and he he writes about being surrounded by his enemies like they're lions. And we see that figurative um, speech repeated throughout the Psalms. Yes. Mm. Yeah. That same image. So it continues on 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, cast him down, deliver my life from the from the wicked with your sword. That's fairly straightforward. But when we get to 14, it's anything but straightforward. Well, it's interesting that many of the commentaries in verse 13 um, don't take the sword part as the way um, the wicked are going to be disposed of. Um, for example, um, what some of the commentaries point out is that the wicked is like a sword in the hand of God. Uh, the sword is a tool, basically. And so I think Rabbi Hershier says that the wicked is a tool in your hand, God. And the, the prayer here, what David's prayer is, don't let the wicked person do more damage than your original intention, God. I mean, that you, God, intended to have the wicked person persecute me to an extent, but don't allow the wicked person to do more damage and harm than you originally intended. You, God, you know, it, it, again, in your calculus, I need to go through some persecution or suffering. And the wicked serves that purpose. The wicked is like that sword in your hand. So David understands that you, God, you ordain suffering only for the purpose of disciplining man, mm -hmm. but not to destroy him. You know, we had this, um, and I think we spoke about this in our, in our uh, going through the messianic prophecies. Mm. Um, it came up, I forget where it came up, but in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 15, the, the prophet says that God is very angry with the nations of the world because even though God intended for Israel to suffer a little bit, the nations went way beyond. Mm. They sort of they went too far. You know, again, there are times when God uses the nations of the world to discipline Israel by causing them a little bit of suffering. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's one thing. You know, for example, God intended for Abraham's family to go down to Egypt and be enslaved, mm. but He didn't intend for them to go down there and experience genocide. Mm. That 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 wasn't part of the uh, plan. And so Egypt went way beyond what they were supposed to be sure. doing. Um, and so that, that's how some of the commentaries uh, understand this idea of the sword, um, that, that, the, that the wicked is really, in a sense, the sword of God. Okay. Well, to give the listeners an idea of the, of the differences between translations of 14, uh, it, it, 13 flows right into 14, deliver my life from the wicked with your sword. This is in the New King James, with your hand from men, O Lord, from men of the world who have their portion in this life and whose belly you fill with your hidden treasure. They are satisfied with children and, and leave the rest of their possessions for their babes. As for me, you know, as, in, as if to say in verse 15, conversely, you know, I'm going to do this. Now, in my uh, Jewish study Bible, and I have to say I do prefer this, this translation when it comes to the, the latter verses of chapter 17, um, I'll read from 13. Arise, O Lord, go forth to meet him, bring him down, rescue me from the wicked with your sword, from men, O Lord, with your hand. 
from men whose share in life is fleeting. But as to your treasured ones, fill their bellies, their sons too shall be satisfied and have something to leave over for their young. Then I, justified, will behold your face awake. I am filled with the, with the vision of you. Uh, very different translation and really gives a very, very different idea. Um, thoughts? Yeah, this this particular verse, verse fourteen, is is the most difficult one in this chapter. I mean, mm. it's it's um, because again, the Hebrew itself um, is very very obscure, extremely obscure, and both the the words and the syntax and what in the world is going on here. And it's a fairly long verse. Mm. Um, you know, most verses have just two segments. And this has, you know, quite a, a bit more than that. Mm. Um, I, I found, you know, a, f- a few dozen <laughs> different translations, um, and and just it's it's it, it's a bit of a quagmire. It it seems that, you know, the simplest way of attacking verse fourteen, as you did, is to recognize that it's a, a contra- it's contrasting to verse fifteen. So in verse fifteen, David speaks about what he looks forward to. And in verse 14, apparently, and I say this with a, you know, with, with a bit of caution, mm. apparently verse 14 is speaking about what the wicked look forward to, what their lives are all about. Um, and, and David speaks in verse 15, and, but for me, I have um, you know, other plans for myself. I have other things to look forward to. Um, but some of the translations just take this in such strange directions. Mm. Um, for example, uh, the way some of the Jewish <laughs> commentaries render this is that David was facing death by his enemies um, because he was vulnerable. You know, he was vulnerable and he was being attacked. And so he starts off by saying that he would rather die by the hand of God. Uh, in his old age, than by the hands of of men. Um, so, hmm. it, so the way they render this is, um, I prefer being from those whose death is by your hand, God, um, and also to be like, therefore, people like men who die of old age, and um, and the rest of the verse is just. Um, so difficult and uh, obs- the, the phraseology is so obscure. Mm. Um, I'm going to leave it with what you suggested because um, I can well, spend about an hour. Yeah, because because if if there is uh, if we are to contrast 14 with 15, um, then we have to deal with 15. It might it might help us to understand. But if we if we go to 15 uh, in in most Christian translations that I have read. Uh, it wants to uh, give the idea of uh, of afterlife in this verse. Not so much in uh, in my Jewish study Bible. Uh, Fifteen says, uh, "Then I, then I, justified, will behold your face awake. I am filled with the vision of you." It, it's it, it doesn't seem to be uh, uh, so uh, uh, obviously pointing other, to a to world. A, to the theme, yeah, otherworldly, yeah. What, what's let's let's deal with that first. Um, what, what do you think of that? So um, the way it's understood in Jewish uh, translations and commentaries is really both ways. That some understand this to be um, the righteous person experiencing the bliss of a relationship with God in this world, 
And, you know, many people speak about it as, you know, when I awake, well, what does that mean when I awake, <laughs> right? So it could either be when I awake every morning in this life or when I awake to life in the next world. Um, that's when I'll really have full satisfaction. That's when it's going to really, uh, you know, because we speak about the idea that the level of spiritual bliss that we can experience in this world is limited compared to the amount of spiritual bliss people can experience in the world to come. And so David is saying here, and it's interesting because if you remember from the previous psalm, um, you know, he's pretty clearly speaking about his expectation of life in the world mm-hmm. to come and the ever, and the afterlife. So it, it could be that this is, again, uh, along the same lines that David is speaking about the fact that he is looking forward to, right? As for me, I will behold your presence in righteousness. Well, when do we, you know, fully experience God's presence? Well, some you could say that we experience a bit of it in this life, um, you know, so you could really read this uh, as going either way. And I think some of the translations reflect more of a this-worldly uh, bliss and this-worldly, uh, you know, expression of satisfaction yeah. with, with his, uh, with his uh, beholding the presence of God in his life. And others say, no, it's really looking forward to the bliss in the afterlife. Now, in, in a, here's another question, and and this is this will probably put you on the spot. And I'm trying to think of a verse uh, that perhaps it doesn't exist, but I think uh, I seem to recall there is a verse in the Tanakh that suggests that or instructs that we should leave something for our children. Uh, does that ring a bell with you? Ah, yeah, I put you on the spot. Well, there there is. I mean, look, there there are explicit verses in Exodus. I think about the laws of inheritance mm-hmm. and about the firstborn, you know, getting a double portion. So that seems to imply that this is, you know, uh, something that should be done. That there should be inheritance left over for children. But if we are and, to understand verse fourteen, if, if verse fifteen is conversely yada yada yada, then fourteen would suggest that this is not something that we should be concerned with, perhaps. But I'm, I'm, I, I feel like I should challenge that and. Uh, as if there's a, another reading to this uh, to this verse, and and I think that uh, my Jewish study Bible does deal with that because it says it puts a but in there in in verse fourteen. But as to your treasured ones, fill their bellies; their sons too shall be satisfied and have something to leave over for their young. Then I, in verse fifteen, then I justified will behold your face, and so on and so forth. Because that because what yeah, that, it, what that does is in verse thirteen and fourteen, we're talking about bringing down the wicked. Um, and so on and so forth. But halfway through 14, there is a conversely, a but, uh, and then in 15, then I. Can that be read fairly in, in the Hebrew that way? So you're making a good point because, you know, if we're contrasting verse 14 to 15, um, it's you difficult. Know, how do we understand? Mm. Yeah, I mean, is, is there a way of reading this piece in verse 14 about leaving their abundance or their inheritance to their, to their children? Mm. You know, as a negative. Yeah, and I feel um, like I want to salvage that. And so uh, I, I think that the, uh, the Jewish Study Bible does that well, but whether that's fair or not, I'm, I'm curious in your opinion. Yeah, the, I, I, look, it's interesting. Sometimes, that, sometimes we're driven to translate a verse 
according to the words, and sometimes we're driven to translate a verse based upon the broader context. The, the greater harmony, yeah. Yeah, so here, you know, the question is, you know, this idea of the wicked um, uh, filling their stomachs with their, you know, their hidden treasure, what does that mean? And, you know, so when it speaks about leaving their abundance to their babes, you know, is, is that just... Uh, uh, describing a good thing or does the context seem to indicate that no it's really speaking about something which is not wonderful um, although it's hard to, to really parse that meaning mm. that normally we think about leaving an inheritance as a good thing mm. um, so I'm not really sure we'll throw it to the, to the listeners because uh, have a look at your own translations available to you and, and observe the, the great difference between uh, translations when it comes to verse 14 because it certainly is curious and it would, uh, understanding verse 14 would uh, then have uh, an influence on the way that you would uh, read 15 or perhaps the way you read 15 would have an influence on the way that you interpret 14. Um, See, here's, here's, here's what Rabbi Hirsch says. He says, David is saying, um, you fill their bellies with that which is hidden with you all the happiness they will ever know, they will receive here on earth. It will take the form of the satisfaction of their physical desires. And David says, I do not envy them, says David. Let them have all the pleasure they want on earth. Let them have many children and leave their riches to their descendants. The kind of everlasting joy which David expects as opposed to that which they await, is described in verse 15. So in verse 14, it's not like normally we would say, that's nice, he left, uh, you know, his his children are each going to get $100,000. Mm. That's not the end of the world. It's not a bad thing. But I think what David is saying is, if, if they think that's real pleasure, if they think that's, you know, the ultimate bliss that human beings could aspire to, is to you know make sure their children each have a nice shiny Cadillac in the next after after they pass away. Mm-hmm. David is saying that that's sort of sad. It's not really what I aspire to. What what I'm looking forward to is real pleasure. And you know that's one of the you know when we get down to it, what, what is the purpose of having a Bible? <laughs> like, why why did God give this to us? So one of the main reasons is that we can get. A perspective on what life is supposed to really be about. And one of the major lessons that comes out of the scriptures, out of the Tanakh, is that, you know, ultimate bliss and ultimate good in terms of life. What is the good life? So the good life is much different than it's portrayed in travel magazines, right? Mm. In, in the world, the good life is lying on a beach in Tahiti somewhere with a martini, and that—that's the good life. That's and and people—that's what what people kill themselves for. They kill themselves, and and again, it's not. There's nothing wrong with traveling. There's nothing wrong with it, but when that becomes the goal of life, I think right. what the Tanakh is saying is. There's supposed to be more to life than that. We're well, supposed to be but here. We're told specifically in Devarim, we're told this is your life, uh, referring to the Torah. Exactly. And the Torah, is, look, the word Torah, it means instructions and it's, it's guidance. Mm. And it's, it's telling us that we are here for the world of the spirit. Meaning that 
if we were only in this world for physical pleasure, God wouldn't have had to put a soul inside of us that yearns for eternity, that yearns for infinity. Mm. Um, if, if we as human beings could uh, fulfill ourselves, ultimately fulfill ourselves with physical things, then God really seems to, you know, it's like they give an example. If you see a child wearing a, a jacket that's much, much, much too big for him and pants that are, you know, 10 feet, you know, they're, mm. they're huge. You know that they're wearing the parents' clothing. And so if a human being, you know, was created and all that they really would aspire to in life is the fulfillment of their physical desires and fantasies, then they're, they're, they just look weird because every person has a, an infinite spiritual soul that seeks a connection with the infinite, that seeks to be united with God and to have a, a knowledge of God and mm. to walk with God and to live righteously with God. And it doesn't negate having physical pleasure in life, but it, it looks at the ultimate goal of life as really the world of the spirit, not the world of the material. So the way Hirsch sees these two verses is David's looking at the wicked sort of, it's, it's, I don't think he's mocking them. I think it's sort of pity. And he's saying, look, this is all they have. This is, you know, all they have is their, their pleasure is basically mm. wrapped up in this world and what they're going to leave their children. Um, you know, they're going to leave their children, you know, money or whatever it's going to be. But David says, but I have uh, other goals. I have bigger goals in life. doesn't mean, by the way, in verse 15, that David is not going to leave an inheritance to his children. Um, it's right. saying that that's not the essence. That's not what he's living for. Sure, he does those things, but he's got his you know perspective on life is in a different place with different goals. Um, I think that's where the Tanakh is pointing us. Right, and so uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse twenty, nineteen and twenty. Uh, well, Moses is saying, "I call heaven and earth uh, as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life." And death, blessing and cursing, choose life, therefore, that uh, both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, uh, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, uh, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to, uh, to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. There we go. You hit, you hit a home run with that one. <laughs> there it is. That's a nice piece of icing That's on the perfect. cake. Yeah, I, I just wanted to share one thought, if it's okay. Go on. Um, you know, when I was trying to, and I always do this when we when we study these psalms together, I try to ask myself, is there anything in this psalm that might be relevant to the uh, interface <clears throat> between the Tanakh and the and the Greek scriptures and the mm -hmm. New Testament, and I, I think that maybe there's one little point here. Um, you know, again, th this is a psalm that really deals with prayer. I mean, it's the, the the title is that it's a prayer of David, and there's lots of prayer going on in this psalm. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, David is constantly praying, and what's interesting is that there are many different words that are used for prayer. Um, he uses the word tefillah, he uses the word rina, um, he, I think he uses a, a, a few other words, and he has different words for how he wants God to respond to his prayers. 
um, hearken to and listen to and pay attention to. He uses different Hebrew words to describe what he's asking God to do with his prayers. And so clearly there's prayer is the focus of this psalm, but there's a problem. And it's David's problem in this psalm, and it's all of our problem problems when we try to pray. Meaning that when you think about it, when we pray, what are we doing? We are basically speaking to God. Mm-hmm. We are addressing the creator of the universe. Now, on some level, that's like an incredible thing. Mm. Um, you know, I, I can't go and see my local, you know, MP. I can't, you know, <laughs> it's not so easy to, to meet people in positions of authority and mm. power. Mm. Um, it was, by the way, one of the most delicious things about being in Israel was that you could literally just go to any, you know, of the great sages of Israel and just knock on their door and you'll get in. Um, I did that a number of times when I was living in Israel. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, we can't do that. We're separated from, you know, uh, you know, our presidents, our prime ministers. Well, you know, you, you don't even think about getting an appointment with them. And in prayer, any time during the day, a human being can stand in the presence of God and speak to God. They can praise God for what God does and thank God for what God does and, and ask God for the things that we need. Usually prayer is, is that, you know, is, is the expression of what people need. Um, you know, David is constantly praying for God to save him and rescue him. He's got all these people that are just eager to kill him. Um, but there's a problem. You know, this is what should be going on in prayer, that we approach God. We want to speak to God, have an audience with God. And yet David is weighted down by this. And we all are. We wonder Am I worthy? I mean, am I clean enough? I mean, maybe I'm not clean enough to be able to speak to God. And, you know, David is certainly gripped by this guilt and remorse, and he's tortured by, you know, this deed that he committed with Bathsheba and her husband. Um, And this is a problem that he has. Mm. And so the question is, how how does he have the ability to speak to God? So one of the things that this psalm speaks about repeatedly is that he actually he has his act together that that was a terrible thing that he did Mm. but he says in this psalm that he speaks to god i'm approaching you god um with no deceit in my mouth and he goes on to say um that um you in the second verse let your eyes behold my uprightness um he he's constantly referring to his being right. I mean, in the very first verse, he says, um, God, hear that which is righteous, hear that which is right. Um, so he basically says to God, look, God, no matter what I did in the past, I'm coming to you now as someone who has gotten his act together. And every human being has the ability to um, atone for their sins like David did Mm -hmm. and to approach God with a a sense of worthiness. Now, in the sense that no one should feel arrogant, but every person should feel that if they've made efforts to clean their lives up uh, and to, you know, work towards bettering themselves, then they have no reason to feel that they can't speak to God. Mm. And I think that the, the, the real issue here is the the question of, you know, I think it was Bailey Smith who, who was very f- infamous 
for saying at the Southern Baptist Convention that God does not listen to the prayers of a Jew. Um, you know, in, in his in his mind, and I think there were many Christians who who cheered at that when it was said. Oh, wow. um, that that you know they have a feeling that you know there's no way of really having a relationship with God without going through Jesus, and so the idea that we have the ability, as David says in this psalm, that he can approach God with his um, uprightness with mm. his righteousness may not be perfect, may have made mistakes, but basically he's a good person. His heart's in the right place. And God testifies to that throughout mm. the Tanakh. God speaks about David's uprightness and David's righteousness. Of course, he made a terrible mistake, um, but human beings make mistakes. And what makes a person a great person is if they pick themselves up from their mistake, they learn from their mistake, and they grow from their mistake. Mm -hmm. Like Solomon says in the book of Proverbs, that the righteous person will fall down seven times, but they'll get up. And that's what makes them righteous, because they are getting up and learning and growing uh, from their failures. Right. And so I think that this psalm, you know, in a sense, is a challenge to, to the Christian faith, which says that um, you know, we have the capability of approaching God with a certain degree of worthiness, hmm. um, with with the righteousness that that's with our within our hands. And I think that, you know, the theology which says that human beings are totally depraved, and God, you know, sees us as totally unworthy, and no one is righteous, no one, not one, as we saw Paul uh, in Romans three, hmm. you know, sort of misinterpreting. Psalm 14, um, this this psalm says that, no, we can have a degree of, um, you know, being seen by God as good enough people to, to approach him in prayer. There it is. Rabbi yes, Michael, Rabbi Michael Skoback, JewsForJudaism.ca is the website, JewsForJudaism.ca. That's Jews for Judaism in Canada. Uh, you'll also find him on Jews for Judaism. Uh, YouTube channel on which there is an enormous amount of research, research blah, 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 resources. <laughs> toy and, boat. Yeah, toy boat. <laughs> Thank you, my friend, for coming back on The Truth to You. It's so good to be here with you. And uh, the next psalm is a psalm that has uh, it's a psalm with a glandular problem. Right. It's, it's, it's really the, big. It's the longest one so far. Let's, uh, massive. It's massive. It's the longest one we've done so far. Psalm chapter 18 is next. Look forward to doing that with you very, very soon. Until then, thank you, my friend. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Truth To You with me, John Ovandor. Join me on the coming Truth To You Israel tour. Details at our website, truthtoyou.org. That's truth, number two, letter U, dot org. Thank you for your company, and I hope you'll join us again. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.